Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is one Max Feinstein. He's a musician, producer, studio owner, inventor, and a New Jersey-based hemophilia advocate using music to promote bleeding disorder awareness. Currently, Max is promoting singles off of a record that he wrote while spending the better part of the last 18 months rehabilitating his elbow after a decade of living with severe osteoarthritis. He is also the inventor of the mod stand. After years of negotiating minimal and never certain stage space in the myriad of small clubs, house shows, bars, and coffee shops where he's played, Feinstein developed an idea that would help streamline and simplify his own stage setup. More on the mod stand in a little bit. For our conversation today, we're going to discuss the Red Hot Chili Peppers and their eighth studio album, By the Way. By the Way was recorded at Cello and Chateau Marmon in Los Angeles, California, and released on July 9th of 2002 on Warner Brothers Records. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest to the program. Max, it's great to have you. I'm happy to be here. So I've got to ask you about about the rectangle. Yeah, the mod stand. Can you uh, describe for our listeners first and foremost, before we start talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, what exactly is the mod stand? How long have you been using it, etc.? So this idea came from, you know, I know you're a, a singing guitarist of your own right. Um, and, uh, you know, as any, any singing guitarist using a pedal board will tell you, it's probably a little cumbersome, especially I had the idea about a decade ago when the standard sort of pedal board was basically a large plank of wood with a power strip attached to it, uh, that you'd Velcro effects to. And, um, I, I didn't really act on it at first, but somewhere in between then and 2015, the standard of pedal boards changed from that plank and power strip to this, different sort of aircraft aluminum design that had rails and slats. Uh, and we know them as pedal trains, but between that and sort of like other companies that did aircraft aluminum with channeling for cable routing, this idea developed to create this uh, bracket and flange system that would use the slatting or the routing channels uh, as a, as a sort of a way to mount the, system to the board which would allow a player to mount a pedal uh, a mic stand directly to the pedal board and I did that originally because I was very frustrated at being a singing guitarist and having to lean in one direction or the other to do my singing and my tap dancing on my board and what sort of came from that further was that it was a space saving measure that it you know when you remove a tripod mic stand off a stage plot you gain several square feet back so I had the idea, and I did this for myself in about 2016. I had spent 2015 experimenting with it in a few ways on my own, but I'm not, I, I may be an idea guy, but my execution, I'm not a metal worker. I'm not anything graceful or productive like that. So I had reached out to, I basically just Googled rock and roll metal worker, and the first thing that came up was a man named Jason Dozer out of uh, Georgia. And Jason is a, an A-list metal worker. He 
works for Prince. He's done work for Tony Braxton, for Dream Theater, for the Backstreet Boys, making custom mic stands. And I'm proud to say right now, uh, you know, he made the the principal ones for me. And then when I started going after the patent, uh, which I was recently awarded, the uh, product uh, became something that we could bring to market under his brand. So you can go to metaldozer.com slash Mike's uh, mod stand and uh, buy that thing right now if you wanted to. This is super cool. So I could see how this would be really beneficial if you're playing, say, like a a house show or a coffee, you know, coffee house or something like that, where depending on, you know, the, uh, the, the specifications of a room, uh, you know, you're working with, you know, a certain amount of space. I could see how just like having that all kind of bundled together would be, you know, really great and really just, you know, especially guesswork out of the, out of the space. Right. For sure. Um, for me, it really came born from touring, uh, because not only the guesswork, but the sh- the extra variable of having to go from night to night to night of not knowing what your stage plots are going to look like, but also in some cases being um, so crammed in a room that you'd have waitresses pirouetting around your stage set up, or you'd have men and women staggering to the bathroom and inadvertently somebody's arm flails and knocks something over. Um, when you have the mod stand as your mic stand, the pedal board becomes your mic stand base. And um, I, I'm proud to say that even on an empty pedal board, like a pedal train junior size thing, which is about 12 inches, 12 and a half inches by nine inches ish. Um, that's enough stage plot that you can kind of wham into it uh, pretty hard and it's not going to tip over. So it has that extra benefit. I love it. Thanks for sharing so much about ModStand before we begin our conversation. This is great. Of course. So we are going to be discussing uh, at great length the Red Hot Chili Peppers' eighth record, by the way, which was released all the way back now in 2002 on Warner Brothers. Um, how did this begin for you, Max? What, um, what made you choose this particular offering from the band that was pretty well established in their career You know, at this juncture in time? Well, this record came out when you know, I had basically picked up the guitar after Californication, but before, by the way. And so I was sort of in between press cycles, but that was also around the time that the band had cemented themselves as a absolute force of nature, an absolute cultural institution at that point with Californication and then sort of cemented it with, by the way... I would say that I chose that because I've made a lot of life decisions based on that record, and uh, I stand by all of them. It was the first record that made me really feel like I wanted to be a musician, not just I wanted to play guitar. Uh, Before that, I was, you know, I grew up, at that point, I I had lived in the suburbs as a kid, and you know, I was subject to a lot of the K-Rock 92.3 press cycles, so there was a lot of pop punk at the time, you know. I was jumping on my bed pretending I was in some 41 and stuff like that, and a lot of pop punk is very snotty, and, you know, Blink-182, you wear out the Mark, Tom, and Travis show record enough times, and your mom and dad get really sick of the fart jokes. So, like, this felt different. This felt... Th- this was different for me. This record has a, an interesting, you know, they're they're known, especially in their heyday, as being a pretty crass band. 
But um, as they started to hit middle age, uh, you know, Anthony Kiedis, especially as a singer, uh, his lyrical path started to become more introspective and a bit more um, nuanced. They were always a very celebratory band. I've always gotten this big celebratory vibe from them, especially with those big choruses, but uh, there just seemed to be a lot of love coming from that that compelled me toward it. Friends, we're talking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about the Red Hot Chili Peppers' eighth record, by the way. Uh, Max, you just mentioned Anthony Kiedis. Who are some of the other uh, members of the band? You know, it's a little different from when they had begun um, back in the late 80s or so. Um, what does the current lineup look like at this moment in time in 2002? What's changed and what hasn't? So at this point, we have the real iconic lineup. We have Flea, the mainstay, the bass player. Then this is a band where every member is somewhat of an outstanding figure of their field, either as a, a charismatic individual or one regarded for their talent. And Flea is uh, perhaps one of the most influential bass players within rock and roll at that point, even let alone where he is now. So Flea as the bass player, Chad Smith as a drummer, um, and of course, John Frusciante had returned the record before to play guitar in the band. Uh, he had gone through this pretty notorious heroin period in the nineties that really just wrecked him. Like he did blood sugar with them and then he left and spent about four years, just five years, just wrecking himself, um, to the point where he needed a massive, like dental, he, he needed all of his teeth replaced. He needed skin grafts he he just really just went for it to try and just you know slowly surely try to kill himself with drugs but he pulled out of it and came back to the band and and kind of went right back to being an iconic guitarist and and he was my favorite is my favorite guitarist and after a few you know he he left the band again uh, a record later and now he's returned and they're working on new material with him for the first time since, you know, for the first time in like 16 years. And I don't know if, it, if you've ever felt this sort of thing with a favorite musician and that sort of return, but it was like, I knew intellectually I wasn't getting a whole lot of my favorite guitar player because he was a total recluse, but it was like, it was like going the whole day without water and then drinking water. It was like to see like some new stuff from him. Like, wow, I was just starved. So, uh, you know, that was the lineup, and I'm happy that it is, again, the lineup. Friends, we're talking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tark about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, by the way. Um, Max, it sounds like you are a longtime fan. You've been there, you know, at least since Blood Sugar, um, possibly before. Um when you heard that, by the way, was was getting released by Warner Brothers and John Frusciante was in the fold. Um, this was actually my introduction to the band was, by the way. It was? Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, I was about 12 years old. Okay. You know, so, and I did my, my I went backward from there. Okay, nice. Um, so, with regard to, by the way, do you think, you know, after absorbing it, you know, 
and then going back to visit, you know, the other records, do you think that this was kind of a scenario where they were kind of building towards the sound? Um, or do you think it's just a complete departure in a lot of respects? Absolutely. They were building towards this. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, they, uh, they, you get the different people who fell off at blood sugar after that. They're just not there for it. And I don't, I can't say I blame them in some ways, even though I don't understand it because blood sugar is, you know, that just celebrated its 30th anniversary. And that record is just as vital to me as it was the first time I heard it. And going back further than that to the, uh, the first three records, um, my favorite of those would be the uplift mofo party plan. Cause that's the only one that actually had all four of the original members on it. But you hear this progression. I think you start really hearing it on that record on uplift where you have this band that really everybody's got their Avenue. Anthony is the greatest hype man of his friends. He's just got all of this enthusiasm for what's going on around him. You've got, Flea doing just all of this charismatic bass work. You've got a really solid rhythm section and a guitar player who knows how to weave around it. And those are principles that have continued through every iteration of the band in terms of having Flea essentially feel like the the sinew and the nucleus uh, with Anthony just being really excited about what's going on around him. And depending on the guitar player being, you know, even with Dave Navarro, there were always these sort of, you know, slinky things going on um, or otherwise complimentary things. Uh, It just built in a logical way from something a little more sex-based, you know, maybe a little funkier to be just a little bit more, in a way, by the way, almost has some doo-wop shit going on. Uh, that they hinted at on Californication, but to me it feels logical. You know, all the components are there. It's still Flea. It's still Anthony Kiedis. You're you're not really going to get a whole. I don't want to say you're not going to get a whole lot of variety out of them, but they have such recognizable. You know, Anthony Kiedis' voice and stylistic stuff that he does is so part of who he is and what he does. And Flea is just that iconic that you're you're not gonna mistake him for somebody else. So to me, by the way, has a lot of you know. There's a lot of energy on it, and there's a lot of you know. Maybe it's a little less funky than the previous offerings, but there's still a lot of that same energy to me. Friends, we are talking with Max Feinstein here on cover to cover with Matt Tark about the Red Hot Chili Peppers eighth record, by the way, it feels Max like a good time to just dive into what your absolute favorite tracks are. We can, you know, pick a couple of singles or we could literally go cover to cover. What would you like to do? Uh, that's a very good question. Cause there's a lot of songs on this record. Like it is a long chili peppers do long, long, long records. So I figure I'll, I'll just pick a few. Okay. Um, and the first one, of course, I'll start with, by the way, and, and I guess I'll talk like the singles, because for me, the singles are cool, but the music videos that accompanied them were like my introduction truly to that stuff. And by the way, had a fascinating sort of music video where Anthony Kiedis is uh, abducted by a cab driver 
uh, and made to watch him do a very strange dance routine in the middle of what looks like a quarry. And, and he gets rescued by Flea and John and like has to jump into their car. And at the end, Chad gets picked up by the same cabbie. Like it's a fun video and throughout it's cut with them just going balls out, rocking around. And I still have this image in my mind. I haven't seen the video in years, but I can see Anthony just spinning like a helicopter at some point in the video. And that's just stuck with my for forever. And the same thing with the video for Can't Stop, which is probably my favorite music video of all time. There's this, they're recreating these sculptures by an artist, I believe, named Erwin Verm, who uh, did this sort of, you know, surrealist stuff. And so you've got like Flea with markers in his nose or like John playing in a room full of lamps strobing and this iconic solo that he's taking with packing peanuts raining down on him like that has stuck with me along with this beautiful orange and silver scheme. But there are some really glorious songs on this record that are, that are truly like, this is the deep cut record for me. Um, There's a song called this is the place, which is the third song on the record that has this really fascinating guitar sound uh, that I, I still don't fully understand how he's achieved it, but I've been compelled by effects probably since I heard that song, as well as uh, Throw Away Your Television has that same sort of thing, and I figured out how to get that one, because he's got this guitar solo going on through uh, this sort of Oberheim step filter thing uh, that you can get through any, like, Line 6 has it built in as an algorithm, uh, called the Obi-Wan. I think that's what he's using. Um, but those were brand new sounds to me. And and there were a lot of interesting effects on this record, like a lot of reverb stuff. Um, Everybody loves Don't Forget Me as a song, because that like became like their big, one of their big live ones, where it's just, it's very slow. And, and you've got just this big soaring guitar uh, but there are just, it's, it's a, it's a record full of ballads too, which is fun. Um, there's a song called I could die for you that has just this, it's a very Hendrixy and how it goes about it. Um, and that's really one of the things that stuck with me too, is again, John Frusciante has all of these different voicings. He is rarely going to do like an open G chord at this point in his career. Um, He'll be doing a lot of upper register stuff. He'll be doing a lot of sort of, you know, static voicings and just kind of finding a way to turn chords into riffs that I found to be really beautiful. Um, and then the two two more songs I drew, no, I could just keep talking about them because then you get like a song like Cabron, which is just fun. It's just a weird sort of almost more Latin tinged thing than they normally do. And it sounds amazing and I love it. But the one that really was like, no, I need to do this. I need to learn this was a song called Minor Thing. Um, there's a guitar solo on that that just soars. It's not long. The song is very efficient. It's right next to um, a ska song they did called On Mercury that I love. I cover that quite a bit in my own work. Uh, but the, the, the big one, the closer, I don't think they've had a better closer in all of their 12 records, um, is a song called Venice Queen. Um, and I, I had a privilege of seeing them live on that, by the way, tour, uh, at the PNC center. And 
they, you know, it was just, it was a beautiful number to see performed, especially when John shifts from electric guitar to acoustic for the back half of the song. And it's just this, it, it is this entirely cinematic send off to Anthony Kiedis's sponsor, uh, from his rehab days. And it's mournful. It's celebratory. It just, you go through a, a wide gamut of moods and emotions in this record that, um, were hinted at on other records, but sort of localized, at least on Blood Sugar, you'd have this sort of mournfulness that was, you know, he, Anthony writes about a few things. He writes about California. He writes about sex or women slash love. I think we can sort of lump those three things together. It could be either loving a woman, love for a woman, um, you know, love for parts of a woman, um, mourning the loss of a relationship, mourning the death of Hillel Slovak, or love for his friends. Those are basically the big uh, the big things that Anthony would write about, and you got a lot of that. You got a little bit less of the sex on this record, but a lot more uh, of the mourning and the love. And, and I found that to be kind of beautiful. Friends, we're speaking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about all things Red Hot Chili Peppers and their eighth studio record, which I can't believe is going to be 20 years old next year. And that is, by the way, um, it's, it's just a bit of an aside here, but I did see that the Red Hot Chili Peppers are going to be touring with the Strokes next year. And um, one song that um, I don't know if we discussed it at this point, you know, really quick, but universally speaking. Yes. Um, has I, I was thinking about the intonation of Anthony Kiedis's vocal, and I wonder. This record came out in two thousand two. I wonder if the, the Strokes' debut record had any effect on the band and and his approach to his own vocal stylings when they were cutting. By the way, because that was such a that was such an important rock record, you know, that had yeah. come out just shortly before that. Um, I could have easily talked to you about that record, actually. <laughs> like there are a few that I, I I really went back and forth on between the Strokes, Porcupine Tree, Mastodon. Like there, like I, there are a lot of fun records, but you're I, what I don't know if they would have. Uh, I would love to hear that Julian Casablancas, uh, you know, at at that point was nobody. Uh, had you know, I don't know what the timeline of the production between "Is This It" and "By the Way" would have been. The Chili Peppers were starting to take their time on their records at that point. Uh, they're one of those bands like Metallica now, who um, you know, a lot of bands have their their sort of three year uh, or so tour regimen, but the Chili Peppers were now starting to take more time. Um, I don't know if they would have had that overlap. They probably would have been touring the world when Is This It came out, or they would have been in the studio. Uh, I think there is an overlap of influence, though. I believe they're both influenced by Iggy Pop. Um, I believe they're both influenced by crooners in general, and, and you hear a lot of, I would almost say, not Neil Sedaka, but like you hear a lot of crooner come out of Anthony Kiedis. Uh, during this time. I also hear a little bit of, uh, it's kind of weird to say Bob Dylan's Nashville skyline. You know, I hear, I hear that when I listen to dosed and I think of lay lady lay as a possible reference track for that. You know, what a beautiful song dosed is there's, it's one of those songs where 
as a, as a young guitar player who had no concept of overdubs, I had no idea what was happening. Like you hear, I, I have now parsed it out as there are three guitars going on at the same time during the the main part of that song. You have this arpeggiated sort of ninth figure. You have the upper register arpeggiated triads. And then you have that lead line going on that's a little more sparse, but they weave together to make this beautiful collage that sounds like it could be just one octopus of a human being. Like I didn't, that's what I, I didn't know how that worked at the time. And there's this wonderful clip because it's one of those songs that they didn't and probably couldn't play live because you'd need a whole bunch of guitar players, and it wasn't until after John left that they started really having sort of, you know, with in the Klinghoffer era, which I also adore, um, they would bring in, like, secondary musicians, like a keyboard player or a percussionist or a horn player in part of their 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 mainstay touring uh, kit. And I don't know what's going to change there, but they brought in... Uh, Jack Irons, the original, the original drummer for the Chili Peppers, Jack Irons, his son, Zach Irons, uh, you know, basically looks like he could be John 2.0. Uh, and there's this video, I think it's in Canada, of them playing Dost. They brought him up, and and Josh and Zach are just playing Dost, and it's, it's, the feels are there. One other, you know, just thing to note about Dose, there are some gorgeous lead vocal, you know, trades between Anthony and John. They kind of yeah. finish, finish each other's, you know, thoughts in some respects. It's this is such a beautiful song. It truly is, and it's and it's a band that had hinted at beauty before. Um, you know, there were some songs on Californication like Porcelain that you know, Porcelain's a song that, that may never get the due it deserves for, for being that sort of, it's almost an interlude on Californication. Mm-hmm. Uh, track six but, or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, I think it's immediately after the title track, like you end up with get on top as this huge funk banger, then into Californication. And then I think it's right into Porcelain and it feels like a little breather. Um, I don't remember what's after it. I think it might be Emmett Remus, but like it's, you know, at that point we're past all of the, the singles on the record, but you know, we're not past the bangers like this velvet glove or I like dirt. Like, you know, there, there were lots of those fun funk numbers on that record, but you had maybe a song like I could have lied off blood sugar that also sort of hinted at this deeper beauty that could be had and, and Dost is one of the ones that really like let them be truly mournful without necessarily feeling gimmicky about it. Like not even gimmicky. Uh, that's the wrong word. Uh, more like they were just able to truly be beautiful without trying to be, um, uh, anything other than sort of introspective, like something like my friends feels a little brighter and a little more outward. Dost feels entirely inward to me. And it's the layering on that, especially, you know, that those are the things that John really brought to the table was this intricacy of uh, guitar and of, 
uh, vocals. And the, the moment for me always in that song is right before the guitar solo when the vocals do that big crescendo, that ah, thing, and you just know something cool is going to happen after that. Yeah, friends, we are talking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover with Matt Turk about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, by the way, album from all the way back in 2002. Um, Max, are there any uh, lyrics in particular that stand out for you on any of these tracks? Um, yeah, um, there are a bunch uh, that really do. Uh, one of the big ones for me would be on... Um, I know I'm, uh, well, I, I guess Cabron is a big one for me. You know, I don't want to fight. I want to get along with you this time of night's for singing songs about the local news, just this sort of peace offering sort of thing. All the world could take a cue from anything you do. If you only knew, you know, things like that really stuck out to me. Uh, one that stuck out, it's not immediately off by the way, but right after it, uh, they put out that greatest hits compilation that had a B side that had two B sides that would have been on that record. Uh, one of which is called uh, "Save the Population," and there's a line off of that that I'd be remiss not to bring up, uh, which is "Blood and Borderlines Be Drawn," because that was the inspiration for me to to work on my own song "Borderlines." Uh, that that's that had stuck in my head. Uh, but to get back to the, the record itself, I would say that, you know, other lyrics that stuck out uh, from I Could Die For You, all I really want to do is turn it into motion beauty that I can't abuse. Um, there's just that that whole song has just all of these beautiful little lines in it that are very much Anthony Kiedis lines, too. You know, there's a phrase that repeats in different places in the record in one way or another, which is come again. Um, that happens on universally speaking, uh, you know, come again, uh, you know, there's because there's no name for uh, it happens on um, I could die for you. And don't forget me the line come again and tell me where you want to go. Uh, it may happen in a couple of other places that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but little things like that uh, were were interesting to me that it, that could be interpreted in some ways as being repetitious, but could also be interpreted as a motif. Yeah. Or from the same notebook, you know, oh, yeah, two completely course. different ideas, maybe. And, and I'd never fully thought about it as to, you know, if, if I ever was going to, to, to ask Anthony Kiedis questions other than would you adopt me? Um, it would be, <laughs> Well, you know, for me, it was also, I have this, I have these memories as a kid of sitting, you know, of going to sleep, listening to K-Rock. And around that time, the two big bands that were dominating K-Rock were the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Incubus. I mean, once you like, oh, if we're talking about like, like-minded bands, because you also did have that period where Linkin Park, that Linkin Park would have been everywhere then because hybrid theory was like, by the way, and that it was just single after single after single that was just like a, a grand slam of a record. But I remember hearing a lot of Incubus and a lot of Chili Peppers and just feeling like they were talking. That's the only time I've truly felt like bands were talking to me like that, that I was just feeling like I was a little kid being held in Anthony Kiedis's arms and him saying, it's okay. Your life's going to be okay, Max. You're going to keep your cartilage into your, tw into your, into your thirties. 
It's you're not gonna, you're not gonna. They, they were that band that you know, as as um, as you said that uh, in my introduction, I am am a hemophiliac. I am an advocate for this stuff and. Uh, growing up with a chronic disorder that that really levels your body into a chaotic sort of thing, um, you try to escape a lot. And they were the first band that made me forget that I had this problem. And perhaps they were the only band that made me forget that I had problems in that way. And that's one of those things that I think we all look for as as you know the things that compel us as, uh, either as music appreciators but more often as musicians because that's usually how it starts you you become infatuated with music and then you want a little bit of that magic for yourself you want to find that thing that other buddy that that other musicians give you and you want to find a way to make it for yourself if not to be able to pass along to other people and uh that was they were the band that that did it for me because there was a lot of angsty music at the time either, uh, you know, we could call it whiny music. I don't really want to call it that though, but like you'd have a lot of music that was, that, that was, uh, you know, some airing grievances or otherwise being cathartic in that way, or you'd have a lot of music like Limp Biscuit or Trapped or the other new metal flavored bands other than maybe Deftones because they were very introspective, but, uh, a lot of bands that were very aggressive and, and aggro and putting on this sort of a physically imposing side of things. Those were what dominated the airwaves for rock and roll in 2001, 2002. Uh, so when you have a band like the Chili Peppers or a band like uh, Incubus, who at the time, you know, were, were really sailing high on Morning View uh, and on, you know, Make Yourself had a, res- a, a, a sort of a, a renaissance with Morning View where you'd have these songs that were very tender and very, they'd have a lot of aggression in the music. The music was either high energy or in the case of Incubus, high saturation, but there was this great sort of celebratory aspect to it that really stuck out to me at the time. There's a word that you just used a moment ago, kind of a tenderness. And it's a real retreat from, you know, the way that they've presented themselves, you know, in a live setting on radio, what have you, and really just incongruous to so many different things that were happening at that moment in time with all the bands that you mentioned. I came across a copy in my own collection here of a Japanese import. Obviously we're, we're dealing with, you know, podcast and radio land here, but I wanted to just like bring this into our conversation. This is a single uh, for, by the way, and there was an unreleased uh, song that I know you're likely aware of called time. Yes. There is a third track right after time called Teenager in Love. Yes. And and we're talking about doo-wop as well in, in this yes. whole context. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful rendition from, you know, it's that Dion and the Belmont song for, exactly. for listeners out there. I highly recommend anybody who loves this record finding some of these kinds of deep cuts that you have been talking about and, and tack this one on to their respective playlists. I would what, even what go do you so think f- about you know some of these B sides here? Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say that I would show because we all have that friend who loves to just take a big old dump on Anthony Kiedis, and I can't say I blame them if I'm being honest. As much as I love Anthony Kiedis, there's there's that great satirical song that somebody made called Abracadabra California that's like them making fun of his mannerisms, you know, and there's a line in there 
I, uh, I'll drink a Alabama Slamma with your sexy-ass grandma. And I'm like, that could be Anthony. And I understand everything that people take away from him in a bad way. But for the naysayers, for those people, I would I would first and foremost show them Teenager in Love. Like, I would do that because that contextualizes so much of what he's doing now. It, it To me, it's like, that's, you know, again, the doo-wop influence is, is clear on songs like Universally Speaking, on uh, a little bit on like Tear. Um, I really love that you have that, by the way. I wasn't sure, I was not sure when you bring up Chili Peppers to other musicians, it's either like, oh, they're cool, or eh, or a holy shit, yes! So like, to, to be able to get that enthusiasm is always a treat, you know, and then that you brought that up is amazing. Time is good. The bicycle song is a lot of fun. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say that any of them should have been on the record over what was on the record, but there are certain ones and I have, uh, I'll turn my computer around briefly to show you um, what's on my wall up here. If you can see it, this is a set list from May, 2003. I see that this is this has to be in the handwriting of Anthony Kiedis, right? It appears that way. Yeah, I yeah. have. It, it, it looks like the liner notes that you might see in various Chili Pepper records. It's a and he's got this very sort of uh, I don't want to say it's very much like calligraphy at all, but it's got these very loops that these very musical feeling loops uh, to the, the, the swirls of the, the, the penmanship. And one of the songs on here that was fascinating, this wasn't the show that I was at. I saw them in the fall. Uh, but I'm connected in a sort of tertiary way to the band through, uh, the friends of a, of a friend of mine that I went to high school with. Um, he's unfortunately no longer with us, but, uh, his mother was part of a band called Psychic TV with the late Genesis Bayer Porridge and uh, through Psychic TV and their drummer, Edley O'Dowd, uh, there was a connection to the band. They would open for them sometimes or that they were fans of Psychic TV. So that meant Chili Peppers tickets could happen sometimes or set lists could happen. And I remember a day coming in when my friend Jesse showed me a picture of him in flea that had happened the night before when his mom or his, or Eddie, uh, was like, Hey, I need your help moving a drum kit out of here. But that was just a way to fuck with him, to get him to go see a chili pepper show and get him to meet flea. And it was one of those, almost like a Chris Farley moment, Chris Farley, Paul McCartney, like, do you know who you are? Like, and, and through that as where I got to see them on that tour. And, uh, I was given this as a memento, uh, of my friend Jesse by his mother. And, and it's, it's a prized possession of mine that, uh, to be able to have that set list. Uh, and on there is warm tape, which is a song that is a, a strange song on that, on that record. Yeah. Kind of on the back half, right? Yeah. It's the, the it's the penultimate song, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, right before Venice queen. And it's, it's a, it's very, low key it's a very low key song and it was one that took me a while to appreciate uh, a very long while like it didn't necessarily feel it it, it 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 sort of made sense and and now that i look back on it like i can see why it's there but at the same time it was it's a little bit of an outlier 
Um, and I, I find it interesting that it, it, it certainly isn't one of those songs I would have expected to be in their live shows. I would have expected On Mercury to be in the live shows, you know, or Minor Thing more so, mm-hmm. but, you know, because they're very up-tempo songs, but, but Warm Tape is such a almost spacey song. If I'm not mistaken, John spends most of his time playing keyboards on it. Like, it, it, it's a strange song. Uh, for sure. And I think this is one of their more experimental records, actually. Friends, we're talking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about Red Hot Chili Peppers and their eighth studio record. By the way, we're getting into a lot of deep cuts right now. We're talking about warm tape. We're talking about uh, minor thing. Um, just, you know, quickly picking out a lyric here from minor thing. I it, it almost sounds like a conversation in some respects that might be happening in the studio. Like I changed the key to from C to D you see to me, it's just a minor thing. He knows everything. I'm wondering if, you know, it's maybe perhaps a conversation that Anthony's having with, with John, you know, yeah. the, the musical genius that he is. And just, it's sort of just a playful, the chili peppers are playful, right? But this is just kind of a, it's sort of like peering behind that fourth wall. If this is really the case, if it happened to be a, yeah, yeah a, a studio like you know it conversation makes sense going on. Yeah. uh based on what i know about the recording of that record it unfortunately wasn't uh the most camaraderie at that point um because john had just you know he'd gone from being a bit timid to re-enter and a bit more subdued because he was relearning how to play the guitar for californication so there's a lot of minimalism on it it's still pretty reserved and calculated on this record based on, you know, I, I am, I've been a contributor to a Red Hot Chili Peppers podcast called Universally Speaking run by a couple of brothers in England. Um, and they did album breakdowns. I didn't participate in the By The Way one um, exactly, but I participated in the Stadium Arcadium one because I've, I've been very outspoken about that record. Um, it, just from a production standpoint, it seems like they changed... Uh, gear from releasing a couple of records in an 18 month cycle to doing a double record out the gate. So I, I find that record to be a pretty bombastic one. Um, but on, on, by the way, there's a lot of calculated decisions and John is really coming into his power. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if that's something that that was. And unfortunately it seemed to come at least at the expense of Flea's feelings, uh, he's gone on record saying at the time he felt like John, you know, and he put it in a very diplomatic way, in a very Flea way, which is to be in adoration of his friends, which is, again, that's that's why I love that band, is because it's the, the way that they talk about friendship was always so beautiful to me. But he said that John was just fully in his power. He was writing such brilliance that flea felt like he had he, he wasn't he it said it made him feel like shit um to be around all that brilliance but to me I, if i were to translate that knowing what i know as a producer um it almost seemed to feel as though flea was getting shot down or that he was getting steamrolled on this record and maybe not in a deliberate way not like in a don henley way where where you know he's cutting you down but in a way where John's unbridled enthusiasm had its unfortunate effect on, on his friend. And it was such a degree that, that Flea had said he had considered leaving the band, which to me I find unfathomable because if Flea leaves the Chili Peppers, there's no more Chili Peppers. 
Like if Anthony leaves the Chili Peppers, it's, you know, Pitchfork will say what they'll say about the Chili Peppers, but they'll also concede that there's really not a person that could replace Anthony. Like there, that, that Anthony flea friendship is what makes that band what it is. And, and especially cause they're the only two members who have been there for the whole almost 50 years of, of band now. Um, that's and, unfathomable. Yeah. <laughs> especially the energy that they still put forth. Yeah. Um, the, there's still a youthfulness about flea, the, the pure joy of music that that man brings out. Uh, and just the, it seems the joy of being surrounded by music that Anthony has. From what, from my own personal knowledge about flea, he started off as a trumpet player. Yes. Then migrated over to bass. We briefly spoke about tear and there's this beautiful, like he's painting with some, you know, some yeah. colors that he, you know, painted with in the past on tear. And there's this amazing, but yet very sparse trumpet solo yeah. on there that, you know, it, it's, it's very flea. And, you know, it kind of reminds me for some reason of like Penny Lane from the Beatles. It's, yeah. It's just it's it's super cool and completely unexpected for for those that may be unfamiliar with Lee's musical Lee Flea's musical background, you know, from the yeah. very beginning. What's fun about like I have certain memories with certain songs. A lot of me listening to that record is me biking around the cul-de-sac that I grew up in uh, in Montclair because that would have been I got that record right before we moved into the city. And I would go biking towards the commercial plaza just, just, you know, during the summer. It was a summertime record. It feels like a summertime record. A lot of their records do feel very summery, and I feel like a lot of them get released over the summer. Um, at least, by the way, did Stadium Arcadium came out right at the end of the school year. Uh, I'm With You was a, a summer release, as was um, The Getaway. But uh, I, I think Blood Sugar was a September-y record. I, uh like September 24th, maybe the same even day as Nevermind, but um, the, the, there's something about certain songs when you're listening to them and, and something is just so perfect about what you're going through uh, at the time. And, and with Tear, I remember going up to Bryn Mawr for like a school thing. Um, and we were passing by this, this, this just perfect landscape of hills during, it would have been around this time, it would have been right before Thanksgiving, where you just have all of these beautiful autumn colors, and you have this unobstructed view of this vast landscape with that beautiful piano, you know, with the, 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 the piano and the trumpet and the little guitar around it that turns into a lead to go back into the verse there's just all of that is what I associate uh, tear with that, that beautiful just hillscape in the same way that I would associate uh dosed. I remember it being in a sort of a low, uh, maybe a year later and just wandering around the city. I was in Hoboken uh, as a kid and on a particularly foggy night, not a very cold night, just super foggy and just being like, this is, this is exactly where, where this song takes me. And that's where that part of terror takes me. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I wasn't sure, again, when I brought up this record, where your head would be at with the Chili Peppers. So I'm, I'm glad to feel like this is uh, this this was the move. 
I love it. Friends, we're talking with Max Feinstein here on Cover to Cover about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We're, we're running the gamut quite a bit, aren't we? We're talking about yeah. a lot of different songs, you know, with the primary thrust on By the Way. Um, are there any like elements of By the Way that you would like to discuss before we, you know, close things up and we focus in on cover art? album art because that's I mean, a, that's kind of a funky conversation on its own oh yeah um i don't know i don't know what else there is to say we've talked about the visuals uh with the music videos we've talked about just the variety of things on that record which are again there's there's a whole myriad of stuff uh going on there are plenty of iconic songs there's there's a, a, a gamut of textures even the doo-wop covers like we we've we've really been thorough i think we can move on to the artwork let's talk about the artwork here so as we both know we're living in kind of this wild 21st century world everything is moving at an incredibly rapid clip um but when it comes to music the one thing that just kind of the one thing that's always pervasive is some form of album art when you look at this album cover what kinds of images are conjured up in your mind? Um, do you like the artist, you know, you know, on their own? Have were you familiar with the artist or was this, you know, also just an artist that was new to you? It's a lot of questions thrown at once, but I just want to, you know, get an idea of, you know, if you think it's an accurate representation, if you really just dig the album cover. I, it's funny because when I got the record, I didn't think a whole lot of the album cover. I didn't just didn't think about it a lot. I knew, like I saw it and I'm like, huh, okay. You know, versus they had, I don't know who did the one for Californication where it was like a pool that's on fire or something. And then you think about like, uh, like the blood sugar one where it was their faces. Like they've had, a highly varied uh, selection of artwork. And for this one, looking back at it now, I, if I remember correctly, the artist was John Frusciante's girlfriend at the time. Um, and she did this, and I believe she also did the art for his record, Shadows Collide with People, which is a glorious record as well. Um, a lot of the same things from the by the way writing cycle absolutely carried over into that one but here what we have here is it seems to be essentially so i'll I'll start by talking about the back of the record which is the band in black and white and they're all and they're dressed in uh overcoats and they're they're in this it almost looks it looks mourning it looks like they're at a funeral, which now that I know the story of Gloria for Anthony, to me, it almost seems like they're there for her. Um, and to go back to the front of the record, it feels as though the background that this woman is painted on is the same background that the Chili Peppers are standing on on the back, the, the landscape. Uh, it seems like a beach, and there is this the woman is is sort of abstractly drawn there's plenty of details but it i really get this photo negative feeling especially given that you see this drawing of a woman done in a in a number of different colors there's one i think for the universally speaking single artwork where uh she's normal woman colors um but here it's you know blue and there is this stripe 
that goes across her eyes. And I don't really know how to interpret that either, other than, to me, this album cover represents death. You know, there's mourning. There's a lot of mourning on this record that uh, is both overtly discussed in songs like This Is The Place and Venice Queen, but there there is definitely... I, I get a sadness from it, to be honest. Max Feinstein, it has been such a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for stopping by the show. Um, I was, I've, I've been really psyched. I've been looking forward to our conversation to talk about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, their eighth studio offering, by the way. So thank you so much for making the time to be here. My privilege. All right. Thanks so much to all of you for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, Thank you very much, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or maybe even Amazon. Take a moment to tell a friend or tell some of your family members about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That will certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover. Cover.